you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah at the end of the last verse of chapter 9, then verse 10, chapter 10. Or on the back of your sermon outline, you'll see the text printed, and you may want to have that available to follow along. Before I read from part of that scripture, I have a question for you. If we picked 50 of you to just come up here and to explain the gospel to us, I wonder, out of that 50, how many of you would include in your explanation the word covenant? Covenant. I wonder. And yet, as you work through the architecture of the Bible, it seems that God's eagerness to have a relationship with people is bound up from the beginning to the end with this idea that He is a covenant God in covenant relationship with His people. And sometimes it seems we seem to minimize this, but I want you to think about this for a moment. When God wanted to reassure Abraham that his word was good and that he really was going to bless him, do you remember what he did in Genesis 15? Here's Abraham. Sacrifice some animals, cut them in half, make a pathway. And then God in His theophany, that is in His Shekinah glory, like Pentecost, came down and God alone passed between the carcasses and God was saying on oath, may it be to me as to these carcasses if I'm not faithful to you. And it says He made an oath and a covenant to our father Abraham. Or when God wanted to constitute Israel as a nation, how did He do it there at Mount Sinai? And you recall in Exodus 24, verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the words of the Lord and His laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. And a few verses later in verse 7, then He took the book of the covenant and He read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant of the Lord, which He has made with you in accordance with all these words. And do you recall the Last Supper when Jesus wanted to explain the significance of His death to His disciples? And He takes the cup, and what does He say about the cup? He says, this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And when the gospel writers wanted to explain to the first century church what actually happened when the Messiah came and did what he said he was going to do, Luke tells us that I'm going to, he says, he quotes old man Zechariah's prophecy. And he says, that is the fulfillment. The Messiah has brought the fulfillment of God's covenant and oath to Abraham through Jesus. And when God wants to give us a sign, 
He gives his people a sign of inclusion inside the covenant community. In the old covenant, well, it was the sign of circumcision. The, in the new covenant, it is a non we call it a, a gender non-specific sign, and you just saw it. The marking off of the people of God, it's baptism, baptism, which says this person is not living out among the pagans, but this person has been, by the sign given by God, included in the covenant community, the new covenant community. And there it is, covenant, 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 covenant. And the book of Hebrews, it goes on and on. Well, today, in Nehemiah chapter 10, we've seen the crescendo growing as the, the book of the law has been read. And then chapter 9 is this long, three-hour prayer of confession. And they confess their sins. And now the last verse of chapter 9, we pick up 9.38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And by the way, the next 27 verses, the first 27 verses of chapter 10, are just the names of all the people. You know, God remembers names. God remembers names. We put the names of the new members in our church bulletin. We, it's nice so you can get names to faces, but God remembers names. He knows, He numbers, He counts every one of His people. He knows them by name. And then, 28 in chapter 10, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules and statutes. And we'll stop reading there and we'll pick up a little bit later. I want you to know Main point, really, one point. We are in covenant with God. Church of Jesus Christ, we are in covenant with God. And God's people have always been in covenant with Him. And you know why? Because God is a relational God. He's a relational God. He's a social God. He likes people. He likes hanging out with people. God is a relational God. And so, as I said, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, He's always been in relationship with His people, and He does it by way of a covenant. What is a covenant? How would you answer that question? Some of you lawyers here. You may know, a covenant is a legal binding arrangement, a legal binding arrangement between two parties. And at the heart of the covenant is an act of commitment. And in this act of commitment, an oath is made. A covenant is a, lead, a, a legally binding arrangement where the party says to the other party, 
I'm committed to you. Okay? In a secular world, a world common to man, we have covenants. A ma- marriage is a covenant, right? We call that the covenant of companionship. And I don't know, when, when, when John Hancock and all those guys signed the Declaration of Independence and they said, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, and we signed our names. It was a covenantal moment, wasn't it? But in the Bible, in the Bible, it is uniquely wonderful because God participates in the covenant. Now listen carefully. Listen carefully. You're going to have to do some heavy theological lifting. Don't let the screensaver go up, okay? You're going to do some heavy theological lifting. But if you're going to read your Bible, you have to understand this because it's all through the Bible. Listen carefully. God participates in the covenant either as the one who himself makes the covenant or he participates as the divine witness of the human commitment made in his name and in his presence. The Bible's not a simple document. There's a lot to understanding the covenant. So again, stay with me here. Some covenants, as you read through the Bible, are covenants of grace. We call them covenants of grace, where the relationship is governed completely and is dependent completely on the grace of God. However, there are other covenantal arrangements that are informed by the principle of works, which is the opposite of grace. Let me explain with a few Bible illustrations. If you know your Bible, that's great. If you don't know this about the Bible, then really pay attention here. Back in the Garden of Eden, when God set up the arrangement of his relationship with Adam, Westminster Confession rightly says, God set up a covenant of works. And God said to Adam, Obey and live, disobey, and you shall surely die. There was a works principle. After the fall of Adam and Eve, as you read through the Bible, you encounter uh, covenants of both works and grace. How do you know which one it is as you're reading through your Bible? And as I've studied many biblical scholars, and this is the way I look at it, it's the party who takes the oath. It's the one who swears is, is the uh, one uh, who, that indicates whether it is a covenant of works or a covenant of grace, and I'm going to explain this. Think, for example, of back to Abraham, 2100 B.C., 2100 B.C., God comes to Abraham, as I told you, and he says, I'm going to bless you and your posterity after you and all those families that come from you, I'm going to bless you. And then God has him sacrifice the animals, and God walks between the carcasses. Abraham is on the side. Abraham does nothing. And we're told in Luke 1, 72 and 73, that there God swore an oath to Abraham. And he's fulfilled it now in Jesus Christ. But it was a covenant of grace because God swore the oath. And it wasn't conditional upon the performance of any human being. Okay, does that make sense to you? That's why it was a covenant of grace. But uh, then we come back to the Exodus 24 one where the people swear. Not only in Exodus 24, 7, but again and again in Deuteronomy and a number of places And the people swear, we will obey, 
we will obey everything written in the law. And you read through Deuteronomy that records it, and there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience in that arrangement, okay? And um, uh, that is a covenant of works. It's based on the foundation of the covenant of grace. It's still the people of Abraham, but now for the nation of Israel, there's a works principle involved. Now, now if you're still with me, I want to make something very clear. Don't get me wrong here, because it sounds a little ominous for Israel, doesn't it? But the law was not bad. Okay, let's just, let's all, just all be very clear on this. The law was not bad. After all, the moral law taught them how to be righteous and how to do good and what was right. And the ceremonial law, as they obeyed that, it set them off apart from the pagans, right? Because the pagans are, are, are wild and crazy, but the, the ceremonies say, no, we are dedicated to our God. And the, and the governmental laws, right, the civil laws, showed how to, to live out in a theocracy. The civil uh, statutes were very good for Israel. But my point, just for right now, is that it was a covenant of works or a law covenant. Now, okay, now we're in Nehemiah chapter 10, and it says we made a covenant. Which kind was it? They are renewing the covenant with, at Mount Sinai, the covenant of Moses, a covenant of works. And they're doing it because they swear an oath and take a curse upon themselves that they will perform in righteousness, all the deeds required by the book of the law, okay? That's what we heard, and you needed to hear all that in order to understand what's happening now in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. And what's so interesting is they do ratify the covenant using the word curse. What's that all about? Have you ever, you know, gone to a... a, uh, a wedding, and uh, the groom calls down a curse on himself. If he's not faithful as he puts on the ring, or, uh, you know, what's this all about, this curse? But you see, if you listen to Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, where, where it explicitly promises a curse for disobedience, listen to this. There's many verses I could read, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And it's just like back in the Garden of Eden. God is republishing this arrangement again, and, and the, the relationship requires obedience for blessing. And you know what Nehemiah and Ezra and the people say? They say, okay, and we're up for it. Let's go. Well, did they keep the covenant perfectly? You know they did not. And ultimately, that's the problem. The Apostle Paul, listen carefully to this. Okay? I mean, you're learning a lot from the Bible today. You're doing theological heavy lifting. Listen to me. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for no one is declared righteous before Him by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
And now do you have a clue why Jesus Christ came into the world? Because only one person has ever completely and fully obeyed all the requirements of the law. Who is that one person? Only one person ever. It's Jesus. And Jesus announced that He came to inaugurate a new covenant. And as great as this moment was for Nehemiah and for all Israel that put their name and signed the document, we all know in our hearts, and the Bible teaches, we cannot be justified by keeping the law. And so we are told that Jesus Christ fulfills the covenant of grace sworn on oath to Abraham. And He's the one who ratifies the oath curse. Why? How do you know? Because Jesus took the curse upon Himself. The cross. The cross. The cross is the place where the execution of God's righteous wrath against the sins of His people is executed. You see. And Jesus, just as God walked between those animals in the car- and the carcasses were there, just as the shed blood was thrown on the people, Jesus spilled His blood for you and for me. The curse fell on Him. You see, God will have a relationship with His people. He will. But it's by grace. By grace alone. You know, we're Protestants in the Protestant church. We cry out in, as uh, you know, we go forward, onward Christian soldiers, and we go forward, we shout out, sola gratia, sola gratia. Does anybody know what that means? Sola, it means alone, and gratia means what? By grace. By grace alone are you saved. That's right out of Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. There's no amount of penance you can do to pay off your sins. There's no amount of of kindness you can do for your neighbor to pay off your sins. Oh, do do your deeds, your deeds of love and mercy, please do. But you cannot pay it off. Friends, God wants a personal relationship with you. And so He sent Jesus Christ to be the mediator of a new covenant. Why? Jesus is the true Israel, we say. Jesus is the true servant of the Lord. He fulfills it all. Jesus paid it all. And where Israel falls, where Adam falls, Jesus stands. And He is our Savior. So interesting. I'm going to wrap up this theology lesson for you here in, uh, in, uh, before we go on to its application. Hebrews 7.22, it tells us explicitly, look at that. He's explaining the work of Jesus and he says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, so there was a better covenant to come and Jesus inaugurated it and he completed it. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. It's a promise covenant. It's a covenant of grace. It's better. And as wonderful as Nehemiah and the people had it, oh, my friends, ours is so much better. The new members that joined our church today, isn't it 
Wasn't it great to have them declare that Jesus is their Savior and that Jesus is their Lord, but we did not ask them to call down a curse upon themselves. Because there is not a curse on the people of God in the new covenant. Why not? Jesus took the curse. You know, this is important for you and for me because as Christians, we have to repent of our sins. But there is also something else we need to repent of. Tim Keller says this all the time. He says Christians need to repent of their sins, but Christians also need to repent of their righteousness. What do you think Tim Keller means by that when he says Christians need to repent of their righteousness? What he's saying, um, he's saying that so often we use our, we, you know, we use our good deeds in order to reassure ourselves that somehow we're good enough for God and that we're better than the next guy. And Keller says that that is an avoidance of the gospel. When you somehow congratulate yourself and rely on your own righteousness, there's something very subtle at work. It's as though you think you're living under a works covenant again, where your performance is the thing that presents you to God. And I'll tell you when I see it in John Yenchko, when do I see it in me? It's every time I boast, every time I brag, every time I have to declare my glory to somebody else. You know what's happening underneath, that sin underneath the sin? You know what that is? That's me trying to justify myself by my law-keeping, by my most excellent performance that I need to tell you about. I don't know how it works in you, but just be suspicious, not only of your sin. Oh, be suspicious of your sin, but be suspicious even of your own righteousness. Why? Because it's by grace you are saved through faith. One of the great hymns of the church, it says, in it, this is a Puritan hymn, it says, lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. And I like that. Yeah, repent of your sins, but, but also repent of your superior righteousness that you have, you see. And stand in Him complete. And that way, he gets all the glory. Now, somebody's sitting here and they're saying, wow, this church really believes in the grace of God. And isn't that wonderful? I guess if, if Jesus took the curse and he fulfilled the law and, and I'm not under the law and I can't be justified by the law, I guess that means I can just live however I want to live. And Sin any way I want to sin, right? Right? It's the natural question. We often say Romans 6 verse 1 must necessarily follow Romans 3, 4, and 5 because that's Romans 3, 4, and 5 are all about grace. And then chapter 6 verse 1 says, what? Shall we sin that grace may abound? Uh, shall we just go ahead and sin? And Paul says, never, no. But we don't avoid sin in order to be justified. We avoid sin because we are justified. We don't avoid sin in order to get God to love us. We avoid, we avoid sin 
because God loves us. And that's what Jesus teaches us in the passage that Martin read earlier from John 14. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Isn't that, isn't that true? It makes perfect sense. He actually says it twice in, um, in chapter 14. He says, if you love me, why, you'll do what I ask you to do. And so, point number two is very simple. It's we who know him as Savior also follow him as Lord. And it's so beautiful that back in Nehemiah chapter 10, the people in the covenant, they then write down specifically how they're going to follow him as Lord. And gosh, that was 3,000 years ago. What could they possibly struggle with that relates to us in the 21st century? But they feel so acutely about the sins that they are caught up in in the culture in which they live. They actually write these down and we're going to see in the next couple of months as we study the rest of Nehemiah together that they struggle with these things. They are saying, Jesus, no, they're not saying Jesus yet. They're saying, Lord, we're saying Jesus. They're saying, Lord, we struggle with relationships that honor you. Lord, we struggle with how we use our time. Lord, we struggle with our money. Lord, we struggle with being committed to the church. <laughs> That's 3,000 years ago. Doesn't have anything to do with us today, does it? Verse 28, they say, we want you to be the Lord of our relationships. And so they separate themselves from the pagans of the world. Now listen, that doesn't mean you can't have non-Christian friends. You should have non-Christian friends. A church is a terrible church if the church doesn't have non-Christian friends. But you're not supposed to be like your non-Christian friends, right? You're to be separated from them. You, they lie, cheat, and steal. You tell the truth. And you're generous, and you honor other people's property rights, right? You know? You're different. They were different. And you know what else? They, they refused to give their sons to the pagan daughters. And they refused to take uh, uh, their sons to the pagan, uh, their daughters to the pagan sons. You know what they did? They actually committed to Christian families. Christian families. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to show you a video from a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, who, who pleads online to the Jewish community, please don't marry non-Jews. And he pleads, why? Because the Jewish community is slowly being assimilated. It's slowly dissolving. They are, their very identity in America is, is being very watered down. And the rabbi says, you may want to do it. You may want to marry outside. But he says, if you want a relationship with God, he says to his Jewish friends, don't marry a non-Jew because it will not work. And we say to our sons and daughters, don't marry non-Christians. It's hard enough being married to a Christian, isn't it? Ask my wife. But if you have a spouse who is not committed spiritually to the same things you are, there is dissonance, there is there is a fundamental inability to be yoked together. 
And so they struggle with this. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks. Then, oh my goodness, then he goes and he talks about time. And that is the greatest commodity on Long Island. More valuable to us than money. You know, it's so funny to watch people. They get invited to banquets. You know what a good Long Islander does when they get invited to two or three banquets on the same night? A good Long Islander buys a ticket to all three so that they can control and govern their own time management however they like and pick and choose and not be obligated to any one of those. It's so funny to watch. Time is so precious to us. But God is the Lord of your time. And essentially, you declare that by keeping the Sabbath. And so they mention the Sabbath. And they're going to say the seventh day. Now, we know that the Sabbath has been gloriously transformed in the New Covenant. So it's not on the seventh day, but it's on the first day. And the first day of the week is a gift to the people of God to come apart for worship and fellowship and celebration and rest and to be refreshed. Didn't we sing that opening song today? If you missed it, it was so beautiful. Jesus says, in me you will be refreshed because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We don't just rest one day a week in Him. We rest in Jesus seven days a week. But on the first day, we set it apart and we say, you know what? The world is not going to tell me what to do on the first day of the week. I'm going to be with the people of God and I'm going to rejoice and rest in Him. That's His gift to you. And it's a sign. It's a sign that he is Lord of your time. And then they talk about money. Oh, my goodness. You want to talk about meddling. They, got to, they say, we're going to pay the temple tax. Why? Because the king of Persia has been taking care of the temple for them. But the king of Persia says, yeah, I've done a pretty good job so far, but that's enough now. You guys take care of your own temple. And then there's the tithes, and they bring the first fruits. And what's that all about? The first dime out of every dollar you're supposed to give to the Levites. And then what are the Levites supposed to do with it? They're supposed to make sure that the ministry happens and live off of it. And did you catch this? That the Levites, ministers, are supposed to take a tenth of the tenth and give it to the temple. I, I talk to other pastors, you know, they tell their people, you need to give, you need to give, you need to give. And then the pastors don't give. What's up with that? The Levites are explicitly told that in this church, nobody's ever going to tell you to do something that we don't expect to do ourselves. Because in Nehemiah 10, that is very clear to the Levites. And they're supposed to give to the poor. And where do you see that? We're going to see that a little later on. You're supposed to give to the poor as you follow the Lord. And they did it by every seven years, letting their fields be fallow. And there were always fallow fields where the poor could go and glean. It was their way of caring for those who didn't have it. And this was an economically depressed community. Remember all the poverty. And yet they were willing to care for the poor and those who had needs in their midst, sharing their hard-earned money with others who didn't have it. And they forgave debts every seventh year. And then finally, they say, verse, at the end of the last verse, um, of verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. What does it mean to neglect the house of God? It's to neglect the church. I, I promise you something. 
You have friends and family members that think you are crazy for being here this morning. <laughs> you have friends and family members that are scratching their heads. You could be home reading the New York Times. You could be out on the golf course because some guys golf in the rain. You could be out on the golf course. You could be uh, teaching your children that the important thing is to be a great athlete, and so you're out, uh, you know, standing in the rain on the sideline watching a soccer ball dribble up and down the field. You could be doing all those things. They think you're nuts. And it's not you that I really need to say this to. But at the crescendo, they say, we will not neglect the house of our God, for we are committed to her. She is mine. She is ours. Yeah, you, did. you can't save the church. Jesus saved the church. But you are committed to her mission and to her life together. And that's what it means to know him as Lord. So, have you been saved by grace? Yes. Do you repent of your sins? Yes. Do you repent of your righteousness? Yes, for it's by grace you have been saved. And he gets all the glory. And now that he saved you, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And you will. And you will. As we move onward, forward together in the year 2013 as a church, with these people who just joined with us today, we will go with the cross of Jesus where the curse was executed. Go with Jesus and the cross on before us. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this one, our covenant king, our high king. We pray, O oh Lord, that we will celebrate our covenant with you, the covenant of grace that carries us home to heaven. Today, Lord, maybe there's someone here who for the first time is willing to say, I, I'm a sinner too, and I need the blood of Christ to cleanse me. And if that's you today, right now, if you're not sure that you're in covenant with God, the way to do that is to just ask Jesus into your heart to confess Him as your Savior. Would you do that right now? And maybe there's someone sitting here today that has been congratulating themselves because they have such perfect church attendance or, or I'm a better husband than that guy over there. I'm a better wife than that person over there. But Lord, we repent of our sins and our righteousness before you. And we say that we stand in Christ alone, gloriously complete. That is the gospel, and it thrills us. In these next few weeks, Lord, will you teach us, teach us wonderful things about what it is to know you as our Lord? Because we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.